0: You are listening to Uncommentary. So I want to talk to you about one of my favorite bookstores. Hearts and Minds Books is located in Pennsylvania. I've never been there, but I met the owner, Byron Borger, online, I think via Twitter. And um, I want to tell you why I use Hearts and Minds as often as I can. Uh, First, I'm a huge fan of independent booksellers. Uh, You know as well as I that when the great behemoth Amazon finally uh, began its quest to take over the world, um, that it is easy to order from Amazon, have the books delivered directly to your door. Uh, But over the course of several years, as Amazon was growing a lot of independent booksellers, mom-and-pop type shops, uh, they really suffered, and many of them went out of business. Well, there's been a resurgence, and I'm really glad about that. Uh, And one of my favorites is Hearts uh, Hearts and Minds Books, And so if you'll go to heartsandmindsbooks.com, now this is what's simple about it. You're not going to see an inventory page. You're not going to see, uh, you don't shop on heartsandmindsbooks.com in the way that you would at say being at barnesandnoble.com. Um, basically go to the inquiry page, uh, and you can send a message to Byron and ask is a certain book available. Now they have hundreds of thousands of titles they can get, but that's where you start. Um, then you can go to the order page and you literally type in the name of the book that you want and the author, whether you want hardback or paperback, uh, and they'll respond to you and let you know what the availability is, uh, how much shipping is going to be for your shipping options. Uh, and you say, well, doesn't that take a little bit of extra time? It does take a little bit of extra time. So if you need your book tomorrow, this may not be the route that you want to go, although they can ship overnight. But when you know you have some books coming up, whether they're textbooks or whether there's some other books, unless it's a special order or a self-published type of title that are harder to get, uh, if it's a normal book, uh, they can probably locate it for you. So you can go to the inquiry form and ask. Then you go to the order form and type in the information and uh, respond to all the information they ask for, and uh, they'll get back with you. And if you mention uncommentary in the uh, order blank, then uh, you'll get 20% off any title. You can also subscribe to the book notes where they feature several books uh, in each note with reviews, and you can order those through Books and booksandheartsandminds.com uh, as well. Uh, but I really encourage you to check them out, especially if, um, if only 10% of your book orders uh, you switch over to, to them. That'll be huge for them, and it won't cost you that much more. Uh, and I'm trying to do at least that. And so uh, I encourage you, heartsandminds.com and mention Uncommentary Podcast for a 20% discount on most items, and they'll let you know when it applies. So I've been thinking a lot lately about the limitations of theology growing up in a single input context. Um, What do we miss? Uh, What do we gain? What do we miss? What do we lose when all of our theology comes from the same uh, stream? when there's not a lot of variation and when the variation that we do face is uh, routinely ruled out of hand or in error simply because it doesn't line up with what we already knew or what we had studied or been taught uh, our entire lives, or in my case, my entire life. So I've been giving some thought to um, minority voices in theology and what they represent, Um, what I might have missed by not studying Uh, global theology uh, when I was in in my formative years rather than uh, the theology that everyone around me was studying uh, and limiting myself to the theology that I uh, had been taught in Bible college. So um, I'm going to be talking to Walter Strickland today, who is the editor, co-editor with Dayton Hartman of For God So Loved the World, A Blueprint for Kingdom Diversity. And this isn't just diversity for diversity's sake, but this is diversity so that we all might be stronger as a result of listening to each other. So now into uh, my interview with Walter Strickland, a really cool dude, uh, born in Chicago, raised in Southern California. I mean, there should be something like sir, do you surf?
1: You know, I, I don't cause I played basketball and my coaches would have killed me.
0: <laughs> really? Okay. I didn't realize those things were, were mutually exclusive. Um,
1: I didn't either, but you <laughs> know, that's
0: how I went. <laughs> Passion to equip people to flourish in their context from a deep commitment to God's design interests includes systematic and contextual theology, the African American theological tradition, educational theory, and theology of work. So, I do have to ask you about your education, though. You got a bachelor's from Cedarville, uh, MDiv and ThM from Southeastern, but your PhD is from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. So I just want to know, were you an anomaly on campus there?
1: You know, I, I, I was in the sense that um, everyone thought I was African. Uh, <laughs> and, and in particular, everyone thought I was Congolese because of my, my facial structure. And so uh, every, everyone, I, I'm telling you, man, every time I landed in Amsterdam, it began. And then I would take another plane up to, um, to the, the Scottish Highlands uh, and, and from the time I was in Amsterdam up into the Scottish Highlands, everybody thought I was Congolese. And then I opened my mouth and then they're like, this guy's an American. They're like all their, I mean, there's one guy who spoke to me in Swahili because he was so confident uh, that I was at least from Sub-Saharan Africa. They
0: were, they were all congratulating you on surviving Ebola.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh man. So, but yeah, so it was fun walking around town, uh, a small town and people would look at me funny. The first day I was walking around the small town because I would, um, you know, I I would come in for, for long periods of time, but then I would go home. And then, so, but when I would come back, shopkeepers would be looking at me and like, it wasn't like a suspicious thing. It was like, Hey, you're new. Yeah. Uh, and then I I waved to them and they waved back, you know, very excitedly. I I walked by the next day and then they would be, you know, bringing me pastries and stuff (laughs) like that because they thought I was like some famous guy.
0: Oh, that's awesome, man. Uh, so you are on faculty, assistant professor of systematic and contextual theology, and associate vice president for diversity at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, you're a consultant, conference speaker, itinerant preacher, associate research fellow uh, at the ERLC. You know, your work's appeared in the Gospel Project. Hey, mine did one time too, but you know, Trevin kind of dumped me after that one episode. Uh, <laughs> Canon and Culture, which is related to the RLC, Gospel Coalition, Biblical Recorder, which I think is the North Carolina uh, Baptist paper. Christianity Today, Baptist Press, World Magazine, and other media outlets. You've contributed and edited several published uh, books as well. So, Dr. Walter Strickland, welcome to Uncommentary. Yeah, thanks for having me. Man, I'm really excited that you're here. I'm excited about the the new book that you have um, edited with Dayton Hartman, who I don't know, but um, you can tell him what a great guy I am. Um, for God So Loved the World, A Blueprint for Kingdom Diversity. Uh, so it's a number of chapters, maybe a dozen chapters, something like that, different contributors for every chapter, so it's a standard kind of compilation type book. Uh, but it's really, really good looking as far as the content, and uh, the overview of the content. Let me say it that way because I haven't finished reading it yet. Um, I love the authors that you have. I love the the direction that you're going. But I want to ask you first of all why why did you do this book? Why why do you feel like it's necessary?
1: Yeah, so that's a, that's a great place to start. Um, I, I'm just confident, but of the unfortunate reality that in America, you know, this this conversation about um, culture and uh, the creation of race and the impact that it's happened. In our society and even in the church is something that we're going to continue to deal with. And, um, to be honest with you, I, I do think that there's a, a number of good, um, of good Christians out there who have gone to secular, uh, resources for this, mm-hmm. simply baptized it and use it in the church. So. Uh, and, 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 the, and then their efforts look much like the world as opposed to resembling, you know, the, the form and shape of Christ mm. in our coming together. So basically I just wanted to, um, have a Christian approach to this. And then I wanted to, uh, really just walk through the, the major sections that, which I think are very important. And <clears throat> the first section is on, uh, historical realities, mm-hmm. the, the historical context of, uh, you know, racial dynamics in America. Uh, and and I, I use the word race and ethnicity and culture very distinctly. Uh, race being a, a socially constructed reality that's used to uh, demarcate between people who are in different groups, uh, which is a, a human-made thing. Which so when, when I say uh, the history of race, I'm talking about the history of what you know, racial prejudice and discrimination has done, Mm -hmm. to which the gospel of Jesus Christ must be applied. And so um, I know there's a lot of folks who are, you know, who sort of look down upon that word, uh, but I'm not using it because I think it's a good thing. I'm using it because it's what's happened, and I'm looking to the gospel to be the balm that we put on that wound. And so I think it's important for us to understand the shape of what that wound looks like. Mm-hmm. So we can diagnose the nuances of it for what they are, and then begin to to pivot looking ahead, uh, with the gospel very constructively and <clears throat> both, uh, in public life, which is part two, uh, and then also within the church, which is part three and practical ministry sort of implications of this. And so the, the structure of the book is actually very, um, intentional in that way. Um, so I think we have to know the past to, to, know, to know where we need to go in the future. And my hope is, is that part two and part three will be helpful for us as we look to the future.
0: Well, there's, there's no, I appreciate you framing the, the definition and the usage of race in the way that you did, because there's no doubt to me, uh, watching conversations, especially online, that a lot of people are now, they're, they're co-opting the idea that race is a man-made construct, <laughs> but not for the purpose of learning how it has hurt us or learning the limitations that, uh, for instance, the majority culture faces in understanding reality because of the construct of race, but as a means of saying, oh, uh, race is a human construct, so we don't need to pay any attention to it. Just preach the gospel and all that stuff will take care of itself. As if the acknowledgement that race exists as an artificial construct Means we should not talk about it <laughs> rather than meaning that we should talk about it, but just from the right perspective. Exactly. Are you trying to address some of that?
1: Yeah, I, I am. It, it, you know, in, in, in my introduction to the whole book, I, I really uh, distinguish between culture, ethnicity, and race for that purpose. I, I believe that uh, starting with ethnicity, this is a sort of a biological reality that, mm-hmm. you know, I have the DNA of my parents and I am African American. And so that dictates, you know, things like my skin tone, eye shape, hair color, and all those sorts of things. And it's really a biological thing. Culture, which, and by the way, like ethnicity will be in the kingdom. Yeah, You know, this every tribe, nation is a good thing that honors Christ, that demonstrates his lordship over every culture. And so I, I do think that that's not a thing we should shy away from. It's something that we should celebrate. But then moving to culture, which is related to ethnicity, but it's not the same thing. Culture is, you know, sort of, if I can explain it this way, it's the things that arise out of our ethnic uniquenesses in the sense that, like, the food that we eat, if you go around the world, you have some spicy food. Uh, even Thai is different in India versus in the Far East, mm-hmm. you know, the farther east. And so, um, like, our our uh, the, the palate that, that we have, uh, the types of humor we enjoy, uh, what what it means to be on time it is a cultural yeah. phenomenon yeah. You know, to be if you're in um you know germany versus america versus the american military even <laughs> or if you're in sub saharan <laughs> africa it means very different things to be on time right that's not an ethical reality it's just a cultural reality so but there are things within this sort of man-made so people make culture and so what that means is that there are good god-honoring aspects of culture and then there's things that the gospel eradicates because they're not honoring to Christ. And that which is good will end up in the kingdom. So people from who are, you know, um, biologically a certain ethne to use the biblical language from the Great Commission, um, and, and then they create culture and they create sort of cultural norms or what have you. Um, but then, and so, so culture is a good thing that, it, and, and it's a bad thing in some ways, the good will be in the kingdom, the bad will be refined. But then you have race. Which race is something again that you know I, I I don't I'm not I'm not enthusiastic that this category exists mm-hmm. I, I I you know if you look back at the history of our country uh, categorization because of biological or cultural traits were used to distinguish between those who were on the outside of society and those who were on the inside of society mm-hmm. there had to be a, a, a motivation to to um, Sort of enslaved people based upon their, their, uh, the way that they looked. So to be of dark skin, basically coming over, uh, to America on the Middle Passage meant to be a heathen. And then to be light, lighter or fair skin meant to be Christian. So, um, but as, as we know, wow, was that ever uh, a mistake? A short. Yeah, yeah. Because there were actually Christians that came over on the Middle Passage on the bottom of ships. Yeah. Because we know that there four major societies in Africa, the four largest societies in Africa were uh, Christian by choice prior to uh, the, um, you know, uh, colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade or what have you. So i have to say, you know, as Christians, it's helpful for us to be doctors in this way, uh, in, in the sense like a medical doctor, not mm-hmm. like me, like a real medical doctor. <laughs> like a real so, doctor. <laughs> because my, yeah, yeah my, my my mother-in-law, she has, you know, we just talked about this before we jumped on here. She has uterine cancer right now it would be extraordinarily unhelpful for the doctor to say, you know, her body, there's sin in her body. Mm -hmm. Sin has affected her body if if the doctor was a Christian. Right. But, but what they said, this is uterine cancer. It's in the first stage. And this is what we have to do to treat it because of what it actually is. Mm -hmm. And so if we call race and like the race and the really horrible things that come out of it, uh, just sin, That's true, but it will not help us eradicate that brokenness as it manifests in our churches and in our society. So what I'm trying to do is get beyond just calling it generically sin, because I agree that that it's that, but to to diagnose it with specificity allows us to then move forward with some real gospel engagement.
0: So early in the book, uh, maybe even the first chapter, there's a part that deals with Um, how theology has come to us in the States uh, from the East and the West church after the split and then the influence of Augustine and other African leaders and how some of that has made it through and continues to influence, but much of that was lost for a long time. And so the dominant – there's a dominance of Augustine, obviously, in Western thought – but most people in America, I guess when they when they're looking back theologically, they look back to Martin Luther, they look back to the Reformation um, so i've been thinking about this a little bit lately is what have I missed not looking in the other direction? What have I missed not studying uh, african american the African American theological tradition, for instance, or what have I missed by not studying global theological traditions and basically being locked into this one stream, even though it's got several fountain heads, whether you're reformed or not reformed or whatever, um, that's all coming out of Europe, basically, um, for me, to me, I should say. Uh, so what, what are you addressing or what's being addressed in the idea that uh, we, we've not recognized or actually have lost and not studied a lot of the influence of uh, either African theologians or the African-American church?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. And so that's, that's Dayton Hartman's chapter. And so I'll uh, kind of give you an overview of what he's trying to, to do there. And then I'll kind of go beyond that to answer what is, what is it that we've missed. So for him, he was trying to demonstrate that um, in America, it, it, it's the, the, the way it plays out, especially in evangelicalism, that there is a predominant voice, uh, that uh, theological voice, that insofar as those who are of minority populations uh, agree with that in the sense that we use that language. We engage the same, um, pre-approved list of issues that are considered biblical or gospel issues. Mm-hmm. Um, that we, that we express our praise to God and similar worship, uh, vernacular and stylistically speaking. Um, we are accepted as being true evangelicals, those who are orthodox and, um, you know, and, and believe, have a strong, Sort of emphasis on the gospel, the centrality of Scripture, the resurrection of Christ, and in uh, conversion. So, uh, really, what he's trying to do is is he's he's trying to simply diagnose like how has it come that there's been a, a particular group who has been the sort of litmus test or the standard by which every other culture's uh, orthodoxy is judged by, and uh, and it's it's, and it's not to be uh, punitive in any way to the dominant culture in evangelicalism but it's just simply to tell the story of how it emerged to be so. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I would just, if for those who are, who are wondering how we even made came to that conclusion of, you know, the Anglo West being the sort of, uh, you know, a plumb line of, of, of orthodoxy in, in the West it's it's the reality that, I mean, if, if you list, uh, if you go to any Christian school or either K through 12 or university, and if you ask them a couple questions like, uh, who's your favorite preacher Who's your favorite, uh, you know, um, uh, blog you, you read? You know, um, who who have who has educated you in your Christian education? What books have you read? It's high, and, and then basically, even in, if they're in an evangelical denomination, who are the denominational leaders? It's uh, it's likely, highly so, that the people who they'll list have a almost the same ethnic background, mm-hmm. and it's unequivocally with, so. With, with, yeah, yeah. And it's, and, you know, and, and and it's just, and again, it's not him, it's not uh, Dayton or myself trying to impugn. We're just trying to say, hey, this is the case, but what does that do to us? Mm-hmm. And we begin to understand what that does to us. It begins to um, allow us to see that, wow, we have taken the culture of evangelicalism in America and made it both the orthodoxy and the, and, and that expression of it culturally is also what is a part of Orthodoxy, mm-hmm. and so if we begin to see this, it opens us up to to other faithful expressions of uh, of Christian maturity that are outside of a of a single cultural trapping of the dominant culture in American evangelicalism, and so you also raise the question about what we've missed because of that. Well, I think in the African American tradition, tradition, there has been this very rich tradition of uh, being able to sift everything according to Christ. It's, it's almost very Berean-esque. And I say this because if you look at uh, black fundamentalists, uh, fundamentalists in the early and mid uh, 20th century, and you juxtapose them with white fundamentalists in the early um, mid 20th century, it's interesting because while they have a very similar theological framework, you have African Americans who are engaging uh, culture and Christian ideas very broadly. Mm-hmm. So for example, uh, they're, they're they're utilizing um, resources that come from Christians, and they're sort of refining them to be more God honoring. They're using resources that come out of the, so- the social psychological world, the like historical studies, and so on and so forth. But they're sifting through them and making sure they're according to Christ. And I use that language in particular because it's biblical language coming from Colossians chapter two, mm-hmm. and so uh, make sure it's not a heresy. So they, they're able to to sift the the good, and you know, basically being able to. Uh, not throw out the baby with the bathwater, or right. chew the meat spit out the bone, because that has been part and parcel to the African American Christian tradition since the beginning. Well, how so? Well, if African Americans simply uh, uh, wholesale affirmed or wholesale, um, you know, denied something, then African Americans on the whole would have denied the Christian faith. Uh, being va- valid because they would have denied it because that was the means by which many people used to enslave African Americans, right. which, which was the gospel. And so, I'm actually very blessed that African Americans from the from the very beginning were able to chew the meat of the faith and spit out the bones of the faith. Basically, with Frederick Douglass, in the in, in the, uh, in the um, appendix to one of his autobiographies, he says. I'm a proponent of the Christianity of Jesus, mm-hmm. but I wholesale renounce the Christianity that's uh, man-stealing, women-raping, and child-selling. Yeah, And so he, he's not only sifting ideas that emerge from secular backgrounds, he's actually sifting the faith that's presented to him, because that faith of the slave master wanted to uh, keep him uh, en- enslaved in his body, but yet free his soul. Your body belongs to me, but your soul belongs to Christ. And so that sort of a tradition of being very integrative while uh having an unapologetic affirmation of the scripture and the gospel as uh as the authority i think is a massive gift to the church that many haven't uh received in the dominant culture and then i'll, I'll give you one or two more uh, r- uh, rapid rapid uh, pace this time okay <laughs> one uh, another one is and yeah, i I'm, I'm talking too much i, I, I know it No, it's all uh, good. another one is is that african americans have had to figure out how to lead from the margins and make change from the margins. I, and I think that for evangelicalism as a whole, we are being marginalized as a culture, but we have no clue how to make change from the margins. We are so used to having the whole field advantage, yeah. quote unquote, yeah. that we, we don't know how to lead from the margins when the cultural current is going away from us. Yeah, And so that's also a, a, a gift. I think that, uh, the American church can receive from African Americans by looking at the history there. And then going globally, cause you mentioned the far East. Yeah. I think that the, the communal realities that we see, uh, in, in the far East, like Japan, Taiwan, um, uh, Japan are very helpful for us because I, I think there's many passages in the Bible that we as individualists, Westerners, misread because even like the the like you, mm-hmm. uh it could be you as an individual or you plural, we often assume it's you singular as opposed to you plural and that actually uh makes us misread biblical passages passages all over the place. Yeah. And so um and then also this even like the, the the dynamic of a um reading the Bible from a uh, honor shame dynamic as right. opposed to a sort of a, uh, a punitive mm-hmm. uh, justice, righteousness, sort of a, a, a dynamic. So anyway, so, so I think that's a very helpful um, one, just sort of summary of what Dayton's trying to do. But then zooming out to answer your question more thoroughly, like because of that, we've missed these things that have been outside of that dominant culture uh, of evangelicalism in America. And I think those things will really help us. If
0: you're listening to none Commentary, my guest today is Dr. Walter Strickland, and we'll be right back after this. So what does it take to keep uncommentary on the air? Uh, Technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, There's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. And and there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, It's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift Uh, If you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as 2 bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20-ounce Coke one time a month, and you can become a a $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, If you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug, and these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give 250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod or Patreon is monthly, and these are uh, auto drafts, so you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, The $2 is gone. The $3 is gone, and really, uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now, back to this week's episode. So, Walter, you mentioned, um, and this is not – I don't think this is in the book. If it is, you can correct me, but uh, in the previous segment, you mentioned – the idea in the first half of the last century. So kind of between the world wars and probably following up after the second world war, um, this idea of um, the African-American churches, black church theology being what we would consider Orthodox. And I read uh, Mary Beth Matthews book, uh, race and doctrine or doctrine and race. I forget which way it is in the title. And and she, she talks about that very thing in there that in the major, Uh, public theology issues of the day, whether it was like personal ethics and personal holiness or whether it was a um, creation and evolution or whatever it was, there were, I think there were four or five main uh, what would be, what we would call like public theology issues. So cultural issues that Christians would address and African-American churches and white churches were like perfectly aligned with how they responded to these cultural issues, how they preached about these cultural issues, how their denominational male, Their denominational uh, publications addressed these issues with the exception of one issue, and that was uh, racial fairness. I'll just say it that way. Uh, Racial equality in public life in the United States of America. So the African-American churches were saying this is an issue for the church, and white churches predominantly were saying this is not an issue for the church. So it's okay if you guys are marginalized, that's not a gospel issue. That's not an issue that the church needs to address. You just, you know, you guys are just going to have to deal with it or whatever. Uh, and the dominant church, the dominant culture church, the white church predominantly, uh, ignored equality in culture while African-American churches were like, no, this is an issue that needs to be addressed. Um, That, to me, revealed, like, this is what it's like to grow up in the dominant culture and have a blind spot you didn't even know existed. Um, So this is not like, you know, you've got one eye that's poked out and you realize that you're limited. This is like you've got blinders on and then you've got dark glasses on and it's all you've ever worn and all you've ever known, and you don't even realize that you have a tinted view of the world. And that's more and more, I feel like, as, you know, the blinders are being widened out and my view is being... Broadened, and my the gl- the lenses on the dark glasses are being lightened, and lightened, and lightened a little bit. I'm like, man, how much how much have I missed, and how much have I assumed was one way, simply as a function of how I grew up in the churches that I grew up in, the theology that I studied, to the exclusion of all of these other voices and all of this other de- uh, depth of theology and richness, like Octavius uh, Booth. I think the the book you edited before. Um, what have, what are some of the things that people like me should be looking around and, and who are some of the people we should be looking to? We've talked about, you know, the African-American church and the global church, but, but let's talk about some people. Let's talk about some names, some books, some, uh, some history and some theology that will help me understand more broadly, uh, how I should live my life. Definitely.
1: That's, 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 um, but there's, so much, there's so much there, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, you mentioned Charles Octavius Booth. Um, he was a, just to kind of give those who are unfamiliar, a sort of a thumbnail sketch. He was born a slave in 1845, which is actually the year that the Southern Baptist Convention uh, came into existence. He uh, learned how to read from the etchings of a tin plate in the sort of shadows, as I sort of think about it, of a plantation. Mm. And then um, he worked at a law office and really learned how to read better there, uh, read a lot of the Book of Romans, which is what a lot of American uh, legal uh, processes were based upon at the time. And then he becomes this fantastic, um, upon you know, becoming free, this fantastic sort of uh, Christian figure in the state of Alabama. Uh, on the one hand, he was a... Uh, you know, he, he, established churches. He established two, one of which became, uh, was Dexter Avenue Baptist church where the, uh, um, yeah, Dexter Avenue Baptist church wow. in Montgomery, Alabama, which is where the Montgomery bus boycott sort of emerged from and right. MLK was his 20th pastor. Uh, he also partnered a lot with the Southern Baptist convention in Alabama. Wow. And so, uh, they actually helped him become an itinerant, um, teacher for, uh, ministers that were in rural areas across the state of Alabama, which is why he wrote Plain Theology for Plain People to be a handbook for theology for those folks out there. And so he's a bridge builder as well. And then he, basically, he also helped start um, Selma University, of which he was the second president. And so he, oh. he's a fantastic figure. And people keep telling me, like, you know what, Walter, uh, I wish there was more Charles Octavius' booth out there. And I'm like, well, who's to say that he wasn't? Right. Alone. Uh, but the, the reality is, is that I had to go through and I had to have a truckload of resources to simply unearth him. Mm. And so there could have been several uh, folks out there that, that, are, that are just as impactful at the time. And in fact, I'm beginning to uncover some of them. Um, and, and, and in the state of Alabama, he wrote a cyclopedia, which is basically an encyclopedia of churches uh of colored baptist churches as he called them at the time yeah. in alabama of which caesar blackwell is in there in the montgomery association he was doing great work and he actually set the theological stage for someone like martin Luther king jr to come in there he was uh reformed in his theology we would say today uh and he's a great person for us to listen to but he's buried in the in the history and so i'm actually writing a book right now that's going to sort of bring him into light uh, a little bit more but Charles Octavius booth is a great place to start um if you're into some old stuff, um, there's, there's other folks that were very influential at the time. Someone like a Benjamin Tucker Tanner, a, a phenomenal mind, uh, as a theologian, but he's, he's very unknown. Uh, James W. Hood, who was a pastor in the CME Church, the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church, which was established as the Colored Methodist Episcopal Church. He actually published a collection of sermons in the, in, in the early 1890s. But uh, so, so, those are just some 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 voices to demonstrate that there have been a lot of wonderful uh, historical voices uh, who've emerged from even slavery to write wonderful um, treatises on the faith, and wow. that's not even to mention folks who are writing in the antebellum period, like a um, Lemuel Haynes, Jose mm-hmm. um, uh, Easton, uh, Richard Allen, who's the first um, bishop of the uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church. Drana uh, Lee, Phyllis Wheatley, who's a poet, Frederick Douglass, and many others.
0: That's amazing, man. Absolutely amazing.
1: If you want, I could do some contemporary stuff, but I just figured I was <laughs> droning on long enough.
0: <laughs> so, um, so let's shift gears just a little bit and talk about one of the things that's addressed in the book. So you have a section in here on public theology. Um, talk okay. about Talk a little bit about what that is, and then talk a little bit about why it's important that we get it right.
1: Yeah. So, just to to say it very simply, uh, there, there's a lot of internal church business. There's a lot of uh, things that we can address in the church itself. But then, as the church looks out into culture, there are you know it's, it's important that we are salt and light, to say it, to use biblical language. It's important that we think about how we interface with the culture. And um, sometimes I think we've had a short-sighted view. In some in some uh, conversations about how we even engage this. And so you actually mentioned that there are, uh, you know, African-American Christians from the beginning have have been screaming that, you know, the the way in which we treat each other is a uh, is 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 not the gospel, but it's a implication of the
0: gospel. Right.
1: And so, um, and, and just like, you know, in, engaging an issue like abortion is not the gospel, but it's an a, the gospel has implications for it. Mm-hmm. And so essentially what we're talking about is how we, as the people of God, are salt and light, uh, on behalf of all Christians, sort of engaging the issues that uh, a variety of Christians will have and not just a, a single culture. And and, I, and I'll kind of go over this uh, just very quickly that, um, there's a, a number of issues that, especially public issues, social issues, that um, the gospel does, in fact, engage. But as you were saying, even for yourself, that there's been a blind spot there. And it's because, you know, because of how, uh, you know, Christianity in America was framed <clears throat> in its beginnings, there had to be a an intentional blind eye to social issues of mm-hmm. embodied life. Yeah. Because if that was the case, you would have to, I mean, people would have to free their slaves and the entire tradition of pro-slavery Christianity wouldn't be able to exist, uh, in which, you know, our denomination is even part of that. Right. I mean, by God's grace, we've emerged from that, but are, the, are the theological underpinnings that had even shaped the Southern Baptist Convention have been warped in order to get a, give a pass on those sorts of issues. And so what we're trying to do, even in the first, um, chapter, which is chapter four, of the book which is the first chapter in the public theology section my uh provost was and he wrote a fantastic a fantastic chapter on and it's called bearing witness to a whole life pro-life ethic and so oftentimes when we talk about you know pro-life uh again we see, we see this as a gospel issue for most evangelicals but really it's the it's the implications of the gospel that we're talking about here but that's reduced to pro-birth yeah because the rest of life has been sort of turned a blind eye to uh in many ways because of the malformation of our theology because you know of trying to be able to evangelize the soul to cultivate piety mm-hmm. to cultivate you know uh spiritual disciplines which is a fantastic thing and a must for any christian but it turns a blind eye to some issues of those people's bodily and, and life existence yeah. in you know, the, 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 the culture in which we live. So he, he does say, yes, we have to be pro-life because the gospel calls us, the scripture calls us to that. But then we have to engage a bunch of other issues that have to do with dignity uh, for image bearers throughout the entirety of life, uh, end of life issues, which evangelicals have been pretty good on, but also in between birth and death, there's a lot of issues that we haven't been so great on. And he's just trying to shed some light uh, towards as well.
0: So let's, um, how, how did we get to a point to where if a guy like me or a guy like you says um, it's important that law enforcement officers are not given uh, that they don't have the freedom to shoot people who are unarmed on the side of the road at a traffic stop uh, or uh, beat them mercilessly uh, when there's a disagreement about uh, how, you know, whether there should be a ticket or not uh, and there, but there's, there's unarmed and it just escalates Um, or, Um, you know, there's a a place for uh, good immigration policy, and uh, people who are caught in the middle should be shown some grace and mercy until we figure things out. How did we get from these are things that we can consider to be in the realm of Christian ethics, uh, where we we stand apart from the world and we evaluate based on God's uh, righteousness and holiness what right behavior is, to uh, holding what would normally have been considered a biblical position, but all of a sudden I am some kind of a cultural Marxist, um, or I am, you know, I have, uh, I'm given in to uh, intersectionality and thrown away the gospel. Um, How how did we, like, how did we cross that particular bridge?
1: Yeah, you know, I I think it's a twofold issue, if if not more, but we'll at least talk about two now. I think the first is is the theological issue that I talked about before, these are all these. all these have to do with not, you know, uh, piety, but sort of social existence, our, our, mm-hmm. our existence together as a people. And again, the if we would have been applying the gospel to that dynamic in the beginning, which, you know, which set the sort of theological trajectory for, you know, many of American, many Americans, we would have had to, to uh, interact differently with, with things like slavery and Jim Crow segregation mm-hmm. and so on, which uh, Carl think Henry laments that uh in in the nineteen well in, in the interwar period uh in the twentieth century. But also I I would say that there's so there's a theological issue, but there's also the relational realities that there are far more evangelicals who have had uh friends, family members, church members, uh, sons and daughters and even parents who have been on the authority side uh, side of that equation as a police officer than those who have had people on the other side of that equation. And so what happens around the dinner table after an evening of, you know, a good, a good cop being at work, uh, doing their job, the best of their ability, they might end up talking about work or telling stories, you know, with their buddies or something like that. And the the perspective is always coming from, you know, a, a a usually coming from, or maybe disproportionately coming from a single side of the equation. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is an allergy to this sort of conversation about, What what does it mean for somebody who is armed as a a police officer to interact with somebody on the side of a road, um, you know, in in an altercation? Like like, that conversation is is seems to be off limits because one, theologically, there's this is not it's not consequential for many because because of theological malformation. But then also the the relational side of it is that they've heard the story more from a, a particular. Uh, perspective. And so they can empathize, which is a powerful emotion, mm-hmm. with uh, one side, and it seems that their theology affirms that mm-hmm. as well. So that, that 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 twofold reality really just gives us a knee-jerk response to, like a visceral response, uh, to to any conversation like that being Christian or uh, being something that should be, you know, engaged in a, in a, in a substantive way. Uh, and it seems like, because non-Christians have been, you know, having this conversation for longer, if Christians begin to step into that arena, then we're seen to be capitulating to their complete ideology oh, as opposed good. to using our theology yeah. to uh,
0: engage a conversation. The book is For God So Love the World, A Blueprint for Kingdom Diversity, edited by my guest today, Walter Strickland and Dayton Hartman. Uh this available in bookstores already? Yes, sir, on
1: both Amazon and anywhere else that books are sold.
0: So that would include Hearts and Minds Books, which you heard an ad about at the beginning of this episode, and I hope that you'll t- uh, check them out and ask for a copy of this through Byron there. Um, Walter Strickland, man, I'm looking, for your future, looking forward to your future work, and I really do appreciate you being on Uncommentary today.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Pod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uncom- uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the, uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Soledadio Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast.